At Total Wine & More, find the best gifts for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for sis or a single-barrel bourbon that dad will love. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Where can you find the best gifts at great low prices that everyone will love? At Total Wine & More, of course, with so many great bottles to choose from. Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine & More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, B21. You reach for the top olive oils and invest in the best pans. But in the kitchen, how well do you care for your greatest tool, your hands? When mine take a beating cooking and cleaning, which is often, I use Bag Bomb to work its wonders on my poor, distressed skin. Created 125 years ago on a Vermont dairy farm, their soaps smell great and clean hands without stripping moisture, and their fast-absorbing lotion means I can quickly get back to cooking. Treat your hard-working hands to Bag Bomb, every chef's best friend. Use code FOOD52 for 20% off your order on bagbomb.com. Good through 2024. Kenzie Wilbur, and this is Food 52's Bird Toast. Imagine Napoleon III invites you to a fancy dinner. It's this huge feast with all kinds of stately people, the kind of thing you'd wear a gown to. There are candelabras everywhere. Now imagine what's being served. Mountains of French cheeses, soup courses, many fillets of many kinds of meats, so many things en croute. It's all very grand. So naturally, you'd probably think there'd be butter too, because it's France. Except there's not. At this high society French feast, they're eating margarine. Napoleon III in France put out a competition asking a scientist to come up with some kind of cheap fat alternative because there was a butter shortage. Hippolyte Mejmouriez, French chemist, somehow came up with this recipe where he kind of melted down some beef suet, mixed in some bicarbonate of soda, managed to emulsify it into this substance that he thought was so beautiful. He named it after the ancient Greek name Pearl. Like now margarine sounds like a really slightly cheap name because we associate it with the substance, but he thought it was pearly white and beautiful. There's a kind of irony though, isn't there? Because endlessly in Britain, and I know you're the same in the States, when we want to think, how could we relearn the pleasures of the table in a really natural way, we think, well, look to France. But they're the ones who gave us margarine. That's Beat Wilson, a food writer and historian who wrote the book Swindled. And she's talking about the glorious first iteration of margarine. It was made out of beef suet processed with chopped up cattle stomachs and then emulsified with chopped up cow udders. Put that way, it's a little harder to think about spreading it on your toast. But margarine is just one of a long storied lineage of imitation and counterfeit foods. Or as B calls them, food swindles. If you look back to the old common law in England, there were two things that you weren't allowed to do to food. And the first was to sell something that was not wholesome for a man's body. And the second thing was to sell food as something other than it actually was. Um, but then if you look at most of what's for sale as food now, loads of it falls under those two categories. So you would think that a food swindle 
would automatically be something illegal. And sadly, that hasn't always been the case. All of the terrible, deceitful things that people have done to food over the years, it could mean padding something out with a cheaper ingredient. It could mean watering it down. It could mean colouring it to make it look something other than it is. I'm not sure whether we should find this a really dispiriting thought or whether we should take hope from it, because sometimes I think we imagine there might have been some wonderful age in the past and everything's gone downhill. But then if you look at it through the lens of food swindling, people have done dreadful things to food for centuries. But if they weren't so evil, you could almost admire the ingenuity of them. These Victorian swindlers who found out a way to make fake peppercorns, they take a bit of linseed oil or the stuff left over from making linseed oil, the residue, and they kind of form it into these little pellets with a bit of clay. And then this is the detail I like because it's almost like a recipe. They added a little bit of cayenne pepper just to add bite. Um, and you couldn't get away with adding too many of these into a bag of peppercorns. You'd have to kind of mix in just a certain percentage. Green tea in Victorian England, they would take these random leaves from the hedgerows, dry them, roll them, and then take these copper-based paints, which were highly toxic, and paint the leaves to make them look like green tea. But now we think of the green tea as being the super healthy one. But in Victorian London, you would definitely want to go for the black tea. The thing that I kept finding while I was researching this book was all the echoes. It just seems like the same story repeats itself over and over again. There were these clever but evil people doing these terrible things to food. And then there were these governments who should somehow be protecting us. But either they're too scared to do it because they don't want to interfere with business, or they somehow can't keep one step ahead of the swindlers. The counterfeit peppercorns and green tea leaves, those joined a cast of other unfortunate players in the food history of 19th century Britain. There were also pickles turned green by way of copper, spices bulked up with floor sweepings, cream made of rice powder stirred into soured milk, and candies sweetened with lead. America wasn't far behind. Swindling in America really took off later than it did in England, and it's partly because it follows patterns of industrialising. You know, as people move away from the land and onto the city, into the cities, you lose that connection with what food should be, what it should taste like. You're not as intimately connected with the people who grew your food. And that creates a huge opportunity for swindling. Once you have these long supply chains, there are many steps along the chain in which somebody could cheat. And so in America, you were an agrarian country for much longer than we were. And in England, people would look at America and think, oh, you have such wonderful, pure food and it's so plentiful. And if only we could be like that. But <laughs> it didn't last. After the Civil War period in the 1870s was when people started to get really alarmed. But there had been little glimpses before that of how bad things could be. The most shocking being the swill milk scandal happened in New York City in the 1850s. And you can see it as being directly related to the city growing. Because in the early stages, picture these lovely green spaces in New York and cows and people could just go right there and get their milk. And that eventually had to stop as the city grew. What they would do instead was attach cows to distilleries. It's the worst idea in the world. Feed the cows this leftover alcoholic mash from producing whiskey or whatever other spirits. 
And there were these terrible accounts of the cows seeming quite stupefied. You know, they were drunk from consuming this liquid. And then the milk that they produced was just a kind of dream for bacteria. It looked bad. It looked kind of bluish. So what they did is they added a bit of cornstarch, let's say, to thicken it up, a few drops of yellow colouring, and then it would be repackaged as the purest Orange County wholesome natural farm milk. And poor people paid good money for it and babies died. It's around this time in the 1870s that the pure food movement crops up. It was a grassroots campaign that would form support for the eventual Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, which was the first major series of food regulation and consumer protection laws in the U.S. And part of the reason the pure food movement was so remarkable was because there were so many different otherwise unaffiliated groups who all cared about the same thing. Some of them were involved in the temperance movement. There was a strong language of morality and sin attached to adulterated food in America. There were a lot of women's groups um, who described adulteration as kind of the worst form of poisoning. Gradually, the pure food movement grew, and it was just this group of people, some of them actually involved in food manufacturing, some of them politicians, some of them lobbyists, and they were all just saying, we need some kind of protection in America. There need to be better laws so that ordinary people can buy food and trust that it is what it says it is. Margarine was introduced to the U.S. in the middle of this climate. After the beef suet, cattle stomach, cow udder success in France, the first American patent for making margarine was secured in 1873, right in the midst of an agricultural depression. This oily spread was basically pretending to be butter. It was dyed yellow and in the same types of packaging. B writes that it was adding insult to dairy farmers' sense of economic injury. This led to huge debates. I mean, it was partly that margarine became a huge business very, very quickly because it's much cheaper to make than butter. And people were making huge profits out of it. But then it also became highly politicized because in Washington, there were these butter lobbyists from the big dairy states saying, Margarine shouldn't be allowed to be sold at all. People called it a greasy counterfeit. They said even to sell it is a kind of fraud. Um, And then there were these bizarre laws which began to be enacted in the 1880s. New Hampshire went so far as to say if margarine was going to be sold, it had to be dyed bright pink. You could be totally sure that no one was being deceived. In Wisconsin, I believe, into the 1950s, amazingly enough, said, you can sell margarine, but it's not allowed to be dyed. It has to be white. And if you want it to be yellow, the consumer was given a little sachet of yellow dye. But then lots of the margarine industry fought back and said, it's totally unfair. And it became a huge argument. But eventually, butter sort of won a temporary victory. There was this thing, the Olio Margarine Act, where a tax was placed on margarine, just to mean it doesn't have such a huge economic advantage over butter. So there was a lot of force on both sides. Margarine had some fierce opposition, but it also had some real diehard supporters too, and not just in a business sense. These longtime Wisconsin residents, they would go on these bootleg runs to Illinois in order to get real yellow margarine, which is an astonishing thought. You're, you're crossing the state line to get a genuinely fake version of a fake product. So many things going on there. But I think actually the nostalgia for margarine, people did become attached to it as a substance in its own right. And we know this about food, that, I mean, 
the fact is that if you're given something from an early enough age in a spirit of love, especially by a parent or someone else that you love, anything can start to taste wonderful, no matter how objectively bad tasting it might be. And I think margarine for loads of people fits into that category. People on all sides of the butter versus margarine debate left no stone unturned. There were even senators who argued that butter's yellow hue was sanctioned by the Bible, so it was therefore wrong for margarine to be dyed the same color. Butter won, but it wasn't so cut and dry. That law of 1886 was part of then a couple of decades. It took a lot more lobbying eventually to get the legislation that resulted in the Pure Food Act of 1906 which partly came in the wake of this amazing book by Upton Sinclair, The Jungle, which really changed the way a lot of Americans thought about food, which exposed these terrible things happening in the meatpacking industry in Chicago. So finally, there was legislation in 1906, and there was a kind of swing towards people thinking, right, we do have to protect food, and it really is in the national interest, and it's important, and it's a national issue. And then... In the United States, as pretty much everywhere else in the world in the 20th century, it kind of swung back again. It was partly the two world wars when people were just grateful to get anything they could. I mean, the First World War in particular was just a gift to makers of fake foods, but it was being sold perfectly openly then. Erzatz food, there was a whole lot of kind of Erzatz coffee, Erzatz bread, Erzatz everything, because the food supply was so limited. And I have a feeling that that was partly what then enabled the late 20th century food manufacturers just to have a kind of free-for-all of artificial colouring and flavouring and preservatives and everything, because at least it was abundance. We were just so grateful to put the wars behind us. But then you kind of have these new products coming in, which have no traditional recipe. Like, nobody knows what a can of processed cheese whiz should have in it. It's a totally new thing. And I think that's partly why food kind of ran away from us, that the lawyers couldn't keep up. And so it would have required some kind of sustained knowledge. And that still, I would argue, is the greatest protection against these kind of swindles. I've been going into schools doing some food education with four and five-year-olds, and I took in some flat peaches um, last week. and, And I was just initially getting them just to touch the peaches and just feel the fuzz on their fingers. One of them said to me, I've never had a peach. I've had peach-flavoured medicine before. And I just, that was so sad. We, we know so many of these things just through the fake flavouring in candies and in medicines. And we've never actually even seen a real peach, never mind if it's a good peach or a bad peach. He'd never actually put one in his mouth before. And he was just, he loved it, luckily. I thought, is it going to be a disappointment? Because it doesn't actually taste anything like fake peach flavor. You can find B. Wilson's work wherever books are sold. Her most recent is called First Bite, How We Learn to Eat, and it's fantastic. This episode of Burnt Toast was produced by Gabrielle Lewis and me, Kenzie Wilbur. It was engineered by Jennifer Lai. Thanks also to Amanda Hesser and Meryl Stubbs, the founders of Food52, and to Andy Bowers at Panoply. Our ad and theme music is by Joshua Earl Dobson. All other music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Our logo is designed by Abby Lossing. 
please let us know what you think of the show. You can leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help. Or get in touch. You can email us at burnttoast at food52.com. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.